You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason Palmer. And I'm going to try and avoid saying without Amanda anymore because life is just in that insane place. And so, guys, she is not in the basement tied up. If she is, it's happened in the last 20 minutes or so, and I don't know about it, and I'll get her out whenever I get done talking with, with the guest today. But she is just running around the house being super mom and chasing kids. And, you know, with, with a medically fragile kid in our house right now, we have a lot of stuff to do. So that's what she's busy doing. So I'm going to stop saying with Amanda or without Amanda, and she'll be back when she can be back until then, guys, we're just going to keep moving forward. I have a guy for you guys to talk to today, a fellow podcaster and a super interesting dude. Overall, we were chatting before we started recording. So I have more details than you, and we're going to get some details from him. This is Mr. Maccabee Griffin. How are you doing, man? I am doing fabulous, uh, fabulous, and that was wonderful. Simply marvelous. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully, I'm saying that right, Maccabee, right? That's right. Absolutely. That's positively perfect. Beautiful, because I am really good at messing up names, and I always ask ahead of time, except for about half the time that I forget, because, well, because the kids have stolen my brain cells, so I'm going to blame it all on them. Um, you know, I, cause I know you, you said you have two kids and, um, and I laughed and called it a starter kit because with, with a nine that, that we like, seriously, at some point they take away your brain cells. I think they do. I don't have any more. I, I really don't. I, I just try to survive the day anymore. And, and even then, you know, I love it when people ask me, it's like, you need to learn how to relax. And when you, when do you take time to relax? Like I relax when I'm asleep. And even then I don't even relax very much longer on that one. Cause now my body's at that age where you move one certain way. And then all of a sudden your hip goes out or your back hurts or something snaps on you. You're like, Oh, how that hurts. I'm it glad sucks. I'm not the only one who knows about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not. Definitely not on that one. No, I dream I of the nights when I used to be able to sleep for 12 hours and wake up like, ah, oh, I feel so good. And, and now I'm like anything past six hours. I wake up in pain. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it was like at this point, like last night, I was actually my wife works at uh, nights. And then uh, so I get the, the the entire queen bed to myself for a while. Um and then all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm trying to find that spot that's not broken in to the sense that it just stays there. Uh, and I was like, I went to bed probably around two something last night, and I got up around six something this morning. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. I need to, you know, I'm just going to fall asleep on the couch. At least I'll get at least something out of that. There you go. Take some pain meds, take some pain meds and just go to sleep. 
There you go. You get to a certain age and, and drugs are, are more like a leave than anything else. <laughs> oh, ibuprofen is my friend. Yeah, I have I have a serious drug habit when it comes to a leave and ibuprofen. And- <laughs> <laughs> you you need a new dealer. That's what you need. You need a new dealer. I found the I found the, the big 500 count bottle, so I'm good to go for a while. Oh, my gosh. That's the only thing that works on me anymore. Like even during the military, I think at some point I, th- I had two hip surgeries during the during my time. And one of the funny things was, is that people were looking at my my medicine cabinet would be just like these big old bottles of 500 milligram ibuprofen or it would be 500 milligram motrin and uh they would be looking at it's like how can you be in that much pain it's like well you know when you're not given enough time to recover and then you're throw once you are done with that then you go straight into you know that six months of okay you're doing the walks and now you got to start running and everything and everything happens. You're like, uh, I need Motrin. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, man. But before we get to sound too much, like, like a couple of vets complaining about our, all of our pains, because God knows that's what I sound like sometimes. I don't know what you're talking about, sir. It's just not, it's not there. It, <laughs> it's, Oh, my pain. Oh, my back, my spleen, a black and my spleen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know that you, you do some voiceover work and uh, you, mm-hmm. so you've got some interesting stuff you're working on out there in the world. You have your own podcast and, you know, as anybody listens to this knows, we talk about foster care and adoption. So you've got plenty of room in, in our experience in that world as well. So first off, what's your podcast about? My podcast is called beyond the pen P-E-N, and it is a platform where unknown and newly authors can uh, tell us about them, themselves, their books, but most importantly, the story behind the story, you know, that little area between the ink and the paper. Um, So some of the things, uh, like, for instance, uh, the next episode's coming up is uh, this Tuesday by 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on your favorite platform, whatever it may be. Um, And uh, we are talking with a young lady by the name of Tanya Eberhardt. Uh, She is the founder of uh, brand face and she helps write her uh, father's uh, memoir. And it's called, um, see if I remember this, the rebel, uh, right. Raising a rebel. Raising of a Rebel. That's what it is. Raising of a Rebel. I read so many dang books. It's not funny. I get mixed up sometimes. Um, raising of the of a Rebel. Uh, Twelve sections of, of how to survive alcoholism or something like that. Um, and one of the things I love to do is I like to look at all the little things behind, you know, th- what's written in front of us. So I look at, you know, world building. The, the architecture itself, the characters, the settings, uh, what are some of the uh, concepts in between the inspirations? And then uh, I just started to uh, really create something because I love to create characters for authors and everything. And uh, so we have this little improv character de- creation and development in, the, in there now. And then, of course, we learn about the author themselves with, you know, learning what their inspirations were when they started, what's their writing kryptonite, um, 
is there certain quotes that inspire them to can you can you continue growing? I can't speak, which is hilarious. And uh, what's next for them and things like that. So um, it's fun. I have fun with it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'm actually I just recently just wrote something. Um, I was contacted by somebody. Um, lady wrote a book a year and a half ago. I think it was that it was released and it was a, a book written by mothers about the grief of child loss. And mm-hmm. uh, she, she said the biggest piece of feedback they got back out of that book was, I wish there was something like this for dads. And um, somebody who I know knows a guy who knew something about it. And I got connected and, um, you know, we are, we lost our oldest daughter seven and a half years ago. I think it's been now. And, um, and so she, she contacted a bunch of, a bunch of men to write their story about the grief of child loss. And so that will be coming out sometime in the, in the future. And when it is, you know, I'll, I'll make certain that I put it out out there and everybody will be able to, to find that, but it, you know, the writing process is definitely something I'm new to and it's interesting. Um, and especially one like that, that was, I, I don't think I'll write anything harder, um, in my life. No, I, I, when it comes to grief, especially when losing a child, it is one of those things that is not only physically taxing, it's mentally taxing and it's extremely emotionally taxing. Um, I know when I speak to a lot of authors that are writing memoirs or they're writing stories that have to deal with certain concepts of abuse or loss of a family member or a child or any of that, anything that's, you know, those traumas that we have in our life, they always say the same thing. It is, it was so hard to do it, but after they got done doing it, it felt so good to get it out. And the one point that they always state is that if anything comes out of this pain that I had to go through, maybe it will be a comfort to someone else knowing that they're not alone. Yeah. That's uh, the, something I heard somebody say a while back, you know, your, your story, when you tell someone else your story, it may be a survival guide for them. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's kind of the whole, you know, one, one of the big points, but at the same time, you know, I lost my dad in November of 14 and um, literally as he was coming home on hospice, our, our daughter went into the hospital and she fought her battle for nine months before she lost. So I lost my dad. And then nine months later, we buried a daughter. And, and there's a lot of unprocessed emotional stuff there that, that that required me to go back through and really work through. And it was a cathartic process for sure. So there's a lot of power in, in just in the process of writing a story like that. Yeah, that definitely. Um, I definitely understand that knowing that because um, I lost my dad back in, um, 2003 um it was really hard to see a man who had went through such pain he was a vietnam vet um he had been an alcoholic for 19 years uh even after he stopped drinking he was still considered an alcoholic because again when we can deal with addiction no matter how even if you're recovering or in that stasis of I'm just there. You still are an addict because you still have to fight that battle every single day. And, you know, when you're dealing with other things like that and, you know, going through traumatic events yourself, it was, it was hard on him, but he died at 
you know, the age of 58 and no man should ever die that young or even younger than that. No child should die at a young age when they haven't had a chance to even, you know, see the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I guess we'll transition over here just a little bit talking about your dad. So you came from a, from an unconventional family, we'll call it. Um, that's, you know, that's what I call our family because we're, we're like a little mini UN here. And we have, we have some kids who look like the Aryan nation would, would, would drool over some of the kids that we have. And some of the kids that we have, you look at and you go, they, I've, the funniest thing was one little, I had one baby who was staying with us at the time and little baby Carl, he was uh, what my friend Corey would say was that boy's so black. He's purple. He was like the darkest skinned little, little baby I've ever met. Right. And the, the gal at, at this little restaurant where we used to go to and, and she, she comes over and looks at him and she says, Oh, he's so cute. He looks just like you. And I'm like, um, I, he is cute. I'll take that as a compliment, but you're obviously either insane or just don't know what to say. One of the two, you know, because our family yep. is so different, you know, and mm-hmm. I know that you had mentioned in, in, uh, in your, in your bio before that, that you were raised by a single father and a bunch of hillbillies. And so I'm kind of curious about that because depending on where you come from, what you mean by that, like, I'm not that far from the Ozarks. All right. I know hillbillies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me. <laughs> I come from a line of country folk. Uh, I, we we call them hillbillies just because of the fact that. Uh, uh, l- l- how can I explain this? When I mean hillbillies, I actually mean like 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 like, like hillbillies. Um, I, I love them to death. As they ever hear this, I love y'all very much. You know this. Um, do you remember what? Do you remember Hillbilly Jim yeah. from WWF? vaguely vaguely okay you big old big guy big white guy long beard like yours mm-hmm. puffed up poofed hair you know wore the the overalls and that brown hat all the time yeah that was my dad that was my hillbilly dad <laughs> um no he literally looks like hillbilly jim i swear you not uh he was a, a um coal miner uh he was a truck uh, truck driver for the coal mines in the area i grew up in an area called staunton indiana which is if you know the uh indiana southern indiana any in any way shape or form staunton indiana is just outside of brazil uh close to Terre Haute, indiana it is literally just it's less than i think they have less than four thousand people now and um when I say hillbillies, like I said, I mean, like, 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 like hillbillies, we have every possible animal on the walls. Uh, my hillbilly family loves or is like in love with John Wayne. Like there's so many John Wayne things in the house. Mm-hmm. It's like funny. Um, we used to have a raccoon, squirrel, rabbit, uh, a couple snakes. And I think at one point. We had, uh, I can't, a couple of weird birds. I can't even remember how many, but my, my hillbilly mom used to rescue animals. I had a couple of turtles too. That's what, and uh, so when you, when you see that you can, you can actually say, yes, I had a raccoon as a pet for a while. Um, <laughs> that's considered somewhat country. That's, that's out there. Uh, the hilly, hillbilly part is that um, we ate things that no human should ever try to eat, ever. 
Yeah, yeah. My mom tells a story about one Thanksgiving they were they were uh, not doing well financially, and I think they had grandpa shot a groundhog, and they had groundhog for Thanksgiving that year. She does not give it a very good review. No, 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 no. That's um, a little earthy, uh, a little too earthy for me. Um, <laughs> I've had uh, we, we used to get quail like every every year it was insane how how much quail quail is actually pretty good it really is um but yeah my i grew up with hillbillies um and my dad was a correctional officer for over 30 years prior to his his death um but yeah it was definitely and and for all that can't see me i am of, of mixed race um uh, but I was raised in the uh, by white people my entire life. I was the only black person in it and in an entire uh, county for most of my life. Wow. Yeah. Now, I, that had to have affected something because I, I live in mid Missouri, you know, what people would call mm. rural Missouri. And to be honest, the little town that we live in is ridiculously diverse. My kids' mm. friend groups are, you know, there's, white kids there's black kids there's mixed kids there's latino kids like it's it's just not even a thing for these kids around here right now it's just normal which gives me a little bit of hope for this world but i also know that if i drive about an hour hour and a half north of here in missouri there is still a sundown town up there and um you, you should know that yes before you look like me and show up in that town yeah, no, you, you definitely don't want to be any other color but white during that time frame. Um, no, f- thankfully, Staunton, because of everybody knowing everybody in that little area, um, everybody knew me. Everybody took care of me. It was never any any major issues whatsoever. And yeah, it, it is different. It is there don't get me wrong there were hard times you know this was back in the 80s mm-hmm. uh 80s and 90s so it wasn't as um politically correct as it was back then <laughs> if we can put it that way that's one way to uh, put it it's one way to put it yeah that's true no um honestly it was not as bad as many people would think yes Yes, I had to deal with the N word every once in a while. But the funny thing was, is that anytime it was used, uh, especially on the football field, um, that person did not stand on their feet very long, per se, (laughs) even if they didn't have the football, we would actually, you know, still take them down a little bit. Um, (laughs) But no, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as a lot of people think. Yes, I don't. I don't speak what what most people think um, black people should talk like. Uh, I speak a little more uh, educational, uh, educated um, than anybody that uh, hasn't grown up in that area, per se. I'm not saying that someone living, you know, in the projects or the hood or however you want to put it is is it's not the same. Yes, it's a different it's a different lifestyle, but we all still go through the same thing. We all still, you know, get up in the morning, try to survive a day, uh, some a little bit more 
with gun violence in the area. Mine was more shotguns in the area than, you know, uh, pistols or Uzis or anything of that nature during the 90s. But it was still the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we've seen both sides of it in our experience. You know, our um, 17 year old son at one point, he had some some bio family members. So we, we kept in contact with because it was bio family. And, mm-hmm. um, and one particular family member had many times been known to tell him that he was acting too white. And I'm like, you know, turns out he's actually half white. He and, and ha- like his mama was white and his daddy was black. So uh, he's just it, as white as he is black. So can we just get over that whole thing? Yeah, it, it's a thing. It's, when it comes to down to here's the funny thing. I've gotten more statements about not acting a certain way from my black community than I had from the white community. And that's something that every, you know, biracial uh, child has to go through. Biracial adult has to go through. It happens to us every, it's just going to happen no matter what it's, it's our curse per se. But one of the things that you said earlier is when uh, you were at the restaurant and you had Mm -hmm. your, child with you um the statement of blacker than purple uh i just put it as blurple um <laughs> he was blurple he was blurple but when they when she says he looks just like you my dad would always make that statement he was white as can be too and he would always put his face up to mine and go yeah can't, can't you tell we look alike and just <laughs> smile as can be it was always funny just to see their face like yeah yeah but here's the funny thing because I have biracial children, because I married me a white woman, sorry, uh, I got a Caucasian woman. If you look at my oldest, he is white as white can be. But if you look at my youngest son, he looks like me. He is a mulatto. So it's always interesting when we're all out together, people still look at him, look at me and think, how are you, What? Mm. But we still have the same facial features. So it's always fun just to make, to me, it's fun just to do that, just to get on people's nerves anymore, honestly. Yeah, I had a friend once who, um, when we had first started fostering, he uh, he asked me one day after he met the kids, he said, I know this guy for years, and, and he's real Missouri. And he said, he was kind of quiet, and he was, is he half black? And I looked him dead in the face, I said, no, he's half white. And I almost <laughs> broke his brain. <laughs> yeah, he could. I, I've done that too. Yes. I'm like you. I'm like, no, no, he's half white. <laughs> yeah. It, because, <laughs> like, what the heck? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And we all know no, it that, doesn't. Unfortunately, we live in a world where not everybody knows common sense things. And so we have to work our way through it. So, so, you know, how did you end up in the foster system? Did you end up or how did you end up where you ended up? I was my birth mother. Uh, was on crack at that time. Again, this was 1980 when this happened. So crack was huge during mm-hmm. that time in the uh, in the urban area, um, in the poor side of Terre Haute. And so, unfortunately, she, after a couple of months of her trying to raise me with the, this other gentleman, um, who at that time, I guess I had taken his last name, um, because Maccabee is actually not my birth name. My dad renamed me later on. My actual uh, original name was uh, Sean Prouse. Okay. Uh, which is always interesting. I don't look like a Sean, do you? Um, 
And uh, after a while, after a couple of months, I guess she just couldn't deal with it. And so she put me up for adoption. And uh, what I thought was interesting is that um, I found out later on that not only has she been dealing with being a drug addict and dealing with that addiction and all the struggles I can deal with that, but she actually was dealing with uh, schizophrenia. So I have something great to look forward to, you know, it's always great to just have that chance to be a little bit crazy. Um, But then again, I also tell people I'm a voice actor and I get paid to stand in a padded room and talk to myself. So it doesn't really matter. There you go. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things that I was, I mentioned a book, I think earlier, I don't, I think it was before we hit record, but, um, uh, the book by Dr. Carolyn leaf and, mm-hmm. uh, was it her, it might've been a different book. I can't remember now. There's a book. I think the guy's name was Dr. Michael Palmer. And so I assumed he was a genius since he shared my last name. Um, of course, but, of course. Why not? And he talked about how, you know, how, you know, that you see things like that showing up, being connected to, um, you know, being connected to things like mental dis- disorders and, you know, and how that can be connected to so many things. And, and substance abuse was one of the things that you saw really often. If you, if you had one, you were more than likely like the, the, the correspondence between the two was a ridiculously high number. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's something that just, it shows up a lot and, and we don't always understand it, but it's, it's something you learned, you know, that, that's just there and, and people have to deal with it. And so, I mean, fortunately, now we have some some medications and, and some uh, communities where we can we can work through that stuff a little bit better than we could back in the 80s, because if I yeah, absolutely yeah, the 80s, we, we more or less just put you in a padded room and lock the door. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes I, I still honestly feel like that in the background, you know, it's like I being it's fun to deal with certain things and have, and really um, trying to search and find things out about it. Because for me, as someone who's very creative, um, it is definitely something that is always interesting to look at for people's, you know, quirks and these little things that make us who we are. And, I've noticed that, you know, schizophrenia is one of those that's always out there for people, but it's also something that has helped me to understand who I am as well as, you know, people in my life who have dealt with traumas and how they deal with it and how they get through it. And it's the resiliency that really makes it better, makes the overall feel of everybody because you know when you're dealing with trauma when you're dealing with mental health and everything else like that you have that resiliency in you you just have to be accepting of it so where did you learn that resilience piece because that's something that there is but you can go to over to to barnes and noble and find i think an entire section full of books about how to build resilience i'm a dad's group uh, a leadership in the dad's group that, that i'm in one of the things we talk about all the time for you guys are always are talking about trying to be more resilient through some of the things they've gone through. And it's, it's a tough one to get a hold of a lot of times. So what do you think helped you find that resilience piece in your life? I would say out of everything, um, my parents always push that into my head uh, on, you know, both sides, the hillbilly side and my, 
actual adopted family. Um, my wife, my kids, you know, just being able to get up every day. When, the one thing that's always helped me, obviously, with my faith and everything as well has helped me, too, is that when you know that you can wake up the next day, that means your mission's not over yet. Your purpose has not been completely fulfilled. So you have that ability to live the life of those who haven't had the chance to live as far as you have. And you also have the ability to almost live for your ancestors as well, for those who were taken early or didn't have those opportunities and whose dreams were taken to the grave with them. So in a way, when you're looking at resiliency, you're looking at what you're willing to do. Are you willing to go beyond whatever you're wanting to do in your life? You know, finding what you're good at and going for it and being able to be fearless because that's the one thing that's always going to keep you in the same spot is fear. It's it, That's part of being resilient is finding and accepting it and moving forward no matter what. You know, that's, um, that's interesting, you know, because one of the things that I often tell people is that, that I want to make certain that, that long after I'm gone, the world is different that a hundred years from now, the world will be different because I live now. They, they won't necessarily need to know that, that I was the cause of that, but listening to, um, are you familiar with Ravi Zacharias? Uh, no, I'm not. He, he was a Christian apologist. I think he passed away a few years ago, but, uh, and he talks about, you know, some of the basic needs of humans. And one of those was transcendence and understanding that, Hey, I, my life will definitely change the world long after I'm gone. I know that because of the kids that have been in my house, because of the, the kids whose lives have been changed inside of my home, those will be changing the future for many years to come because I lived the world will be different. And I think that is super powerful for me to, to get up every day and go continue to do the things that we do because I know that it makes a difference in the world. And, uh, and I think a lot of that has come to, uh, come, come to fruition as a part of my, my own personal faith journey. I've been over the last, last few years. And I know that you, you mentioned that your personal faith journey is, is a part of your belief system and and affects your life so I, I was curious you know how does how does your faith affect the way that that you see your life moving you know moving through all of this i'm so, i'm sorry can you repeat that question my <laughs> distractions occurred yeah, in the that, area i own distractions as well the totally uh, no no um <laughs> How does your faith journey, how has your faith, your own personal faith changed how, how you've walked through this, this process you have, you know, what coming from, um, coming from one bio family to another bio family and creating a family of your own? It has given me a sense of need of purpose and having fun with that. And understanding that no matter what I do, no matter what I say, it's already written down. It's already going to happen. All I have to do is accept it. I have to accept that when I am 
on this mission of going and struggling each and every day to get by or even to accept what I'm on, the journey that I'm on, then I have to believe it. I have to utilize it and understand it. Okay, so the my faith has allowed me to, uh, like I said earlier, get past all those boundaries of even when something's happening that's going wrong, I know that it's not going to stay there the entire time. One of the one of my friends uh, from my faith group, uh, Men of Hope, uh, one of the things that he would always tell me, Brother Ruffin would always say was, a storm is a two-way streak. One, it's going to clear up the area that you're around you. And two, it's going to weather your skin so you can go through more. So in that saying is, is that, yes, we're going to go through storms. We're going to struggle. We're going to deal with all this stuff. And we're going to feel like we're the only one in this freaking flood that's happening for us. The problem that people don't, that a lot of people forget is that flood's got to go past you at some point and it's got to stop. It's not going to last forever. And you're going to find land and you're going to be on land for a while, but you're not going to be struggling swimming. And here's the great thing about it. Once that storm passes, you can look back there and you'll notice that a lot of the stuff that you were holding on to or the things were keeping you in that certain spot have been blown away. They're, they're just crumbled behind you. So for me, when I see that I'm struggling with something or my family is struggling with something, I know for a fact that that is there for a specific reason. And it is to help us to get better, to figure out what it is that we're supposed to learn from this situation. And I think that's another thing that's helped me really utilize and understand my resiliency. And I think that's a lot of things that many people, especially those that have been in the foster care have been adopted out, dealing with family of addictions, it's not, it's going to go away and it's going to get better. You just have to weather the storm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's always that, that old verse, you know, God works everything together for the good of those who love him. And, you know, when you find that piece of faith and it actually becomes real in your life, it's amazing how that changes things because, and for the people who I've met who are in the middle of that, that storm, especially if it's, you know, one of the, the first time they found a really big storm in life and they don't think that's even possible. I know I did not. Um, but, I, you know, I can tell you from the guy who was standing there holding his child's casket, beauty came out of that. It took a while to see it. But, you, you know, yeah. when you have that faith, that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's it's something that, there's always there's always something that uh, always surprises me when I look back at certain things and I see all these these videos out there that are of people saying like God gives the the battles to the strongest people you know in this war and uh, the other part of that is when did I sign up for the war right 
And he's like, I didn't, you know, we didn't, we know none of us did. However, it's something that happens because it's just, that's the way it is. Here's another way of looking at it. Every sculpture starts as a plain piece of rock or of a shape of some form. But to be shaped out the certain way that it is, you have to break pieces. Things have to fall off of you or be chipped away from you. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes you're going to get a little bit more than you need it to. But in the end, no matter what, you're going to be shaped and molded into this beautiful sculpture that everybody's going to be in awe of. You just have to accept that and be willing to work with that. You know, it's my understanding that the Grand Canyon was once just a boring old plane. Yeah. Yeah. And look what it is now. Yeah. It took a lot of years. (laughs) It's a big old hole in the ground. A lot of years. A lot of years. Rubbing a lot of stuff off and, and, you know, that, that, that process of shaping something new that people will pick up out of uh, across the world. And, and if they're coming to the U.S., they'll, they'll take that time to stop by sometimes and go take a look at this big, beautiful, amazing piece of nature that, that took a lot of years of friction to make that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, it's just how it is, especially for the again, for those who have been through the foster system, been adopted out, still trying to struggle and figure out where they come from. You know, it's it's a lifelong thing that's going to happen, you know, and it's even harder for those people that are supporting them and helping them along the way because they have to see them struggle and they they're there to make sure everything is uh, working well for you, you know, and they're there to make sure that you are going to be in the best place that you can be. Yeah. Because I will never be enough to replace the trauma of my kids losing their biological fathers. I can't. Uh, no, but you're there to support them and love them anyway. Yep. Yep. And that that's, that's the struggle of this, uh, this journey, I think. So, you know, I, I'm curious, one of the questions I, I do like to ask people is what, what's that journey been like for you as you've, you've grown and become gotten older and, and dealt with, you know, that loss of first family. Did you, did you connect with your bio parents? Is that a relationship that you were able to, uh, to rekindle it all or heal from, or what's, what's that, that been like? I mean, because that loss of first family is always a wound. For me, it is, it's been difficult. I didn't know about them until I was 18. Um, Honestly, over the past 20 some years, um, we haven't really talked Um, I know that through, uh, one of my, uh, second cousins, uh, on my mother's side, um, is that she is actually in the, um, in a home right now dealing with her schizophrenia. Um, my cousin's mom just passed away. And so I don't have a lot of connection with that side, unfortunately, uh, mainly because again, at, you know, an earlier age, I was like, I was excited at first, but then all of a sudden it just, 
weighed out because we didn't connect. There, there was nothing there to really connect with. So for me, it, it pretty much died out. Now, don't get me wrong. If my brothers and or sister want to connect with me again, great. I'll be happy to connect with them and talk to them. Um, but I think it's just, there's not a lot there to actually grasp onto because there wasn't anything there at the beginning. And it is hard to connect with somebody. It's always something that you have to deal with when you are just abandoned or let go. Especially if you're the rest of the family didn't know anything about it. You know, it's really hard because there is that, that pain, there's that anger of dealing with like, why did you give me up? What did I do wrong for you to look at me and say, no, I don't want to deal with this one. But then again, I have to understand as I've gotten older, unfortunately, wisdom grows with age is that you have to really give them the chance to actually get to know you and understand that there are circumstances that were in play. And again, as I got older, I understood now there were a lot of drugs involved. So addiction was the, the key to that unfortunate demise of that relationship. And also mental health with dealing with schizophrenia and everything else. The donor side, AKA the uh, paternal, the paternal side. Um, I don't know anything about him. I don't know anybody close enough to know who he is. I just know I have a fifth cousin out there that we've talked and he's a great guy. Love him to death. Um, and we talk every once in a while, but there's, it's still a mystery there too. So in the end, my entire bloodline basically is a mystery. And so I just deal with it. And if it comes my way, great. I will attach to it and I will try to figure out what's going on with it so I can have a good genealogy for my, my kids, I have great stories for them. So have you ever tried any of the 23andMe or the Ancestry.com things? Yeah, absolutely. So the Ancestry.com, I got in touch with my fifth cousin from my, my uh, paternal side and uh, he did a 23 and me for me and him. And that's how I actually met my, uh, my little sister, my 20 year old little sister. And uh, that's why she's with us right now. And we're getting to know each other and dealing with each other. And I try to not try, I try not to play the, the father uncle card, but sometimes that that older brother just turns into that father kind of figure because again, I'm a lot older than she is. Um, but there's a lot of things that she teaches me too. And that is that, you know, your trauma is not my trauma. You don't need to push your trauma onto me. And it's, it's funny how we've gotten along and we've learned to love each other. Cause there is that little break of, what is love? What, what does it feel to actually love somebody? And you question it a lot, honestly, when you don't have it at the beginning part, but it's gotten better. It has honestly gotten better. Well, we'll warn you. Number one, um, as a guy with some experience, little sisters can be annoying. Oh no, trust me. She's definitely gotten to that point of annoyance. Definitely. <laughs> Believe me on that one, but she's also helped out a little bit too. So 
Yeah, well, my, I don't think my my younger sister or my older sister listens to the podcast. So I don't have to worry about. It. I can talk smack about them, and and if they do hear it, they'll just smack me in the head if they see me. It'll be okay. Yeah, mine doesn't really listen to me at all. Anyway, she basically stays in her room and the entire time. She'll come out for food every once in a while, but that's about it. Every once in a while, we'll get an interaction too. So that sounds like my fifteen year old daughter. That there's <laughs> I don't know what they do in that bedroom, but apparently they're there it's a lifeline to something important and, and they tend to hide. But I think, you know, as far as 15 year old daughter goes like that's that's part of that, that age range, you know, they just, they go and beginning that process of separation. If you think Freud had anything figured out and, and beginning to, to separate and become, get ready to, to go see the rest of the world and become their own human. And, you know, she, she'll come out occasionally and say things that terrify me. Like, you know, dad, I'm not sure who has the better school for medicine, um, I'm thinking about Harvard or Yale and I'm like, no, no. Um, actually I hear the community college here locally has a great beginner program and. <laughs> oh yeah. I will play that community college one up as far as I can firsthand because, you know, it, it, as we both found out that community colleges are really good to have at first, because first you can get all your general studies out of the way. And then you can go into whatever degree you want and it's going to be a lot cheaper too. And it's going to be closer to your families. Yeah. Comparatively. I always try to remind them with nine kids, I'm not paying for college. You know, true. you're lucky true. I do this many years on a regular basis every day. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's all about the state. The state can pay for it. <laughs> the government can pay for it. Let yeah. me have it. Let me have yeah. it. And my oldest son, he, he went off to the army some years back and, and thank God he believed me when I told him I wasn't paying for college for everybody. And, and he went into their program and got his LPN certification and, and got all school taken care of in, in the army. And he's out now using the, whatever it is now, I think it's a post nine 11 bill. And well, yeah. he's, he's going, going back to school right now to, uh, to go back and, and, get his RN degree, I believe is what he's doing right now. And so, yeah, he's at least, you know, he's at least finding ways to cover the cost of that that don't involve dad cashing out the 401k because I, I don't want to be like eating Alpo at, at 65 or 70 because I can't afford to live after all the money I spent on, on all those, those college years. I've heard Alpo is actually pretty good. It may be, but I'm going to actually convince he no he he convinced his younger brother who's now i think 22 ish and like six inches taller than him much bigger it's kind of funny mm-hmm. but he convinced him to eat dog food once and he said he did not <laughs> taste good actually <laughs> yeah well you know closest to mres as anything you know that captain jack one is just mm. <sighs> oh, i remember the fights over who got the peanut butter pouch right oh yeah it was it was always the uh, the chili mac for me there you go. See, it's always the chili mac, always chili mac, man. Had the best, <laughs> had the best food, best snacks, and he had the best uh, mixture. Right, right. But yeah, I, I don't want to be eating that kind of stuff when I get to be uh, when I get to retirement age. But a, as we stand right now, if if everything goes as it looks like it's going to go, um, the youngest, you know, my littlest one, I'm 45 now, and she is not even a year old yet. So at about 63, she'll walk across that graduation stage. And that terrifies me more than a little bit. Cause I've got a lot of years to work yet just to cover all the cost of raising kids. And, 
and I don't know if you know this yet or not, but I saw a government study done several years back. It said raising a kid will cost you roughly uh, $250,000 over the course of their lifetime. And these kids do not believe they should pay that back. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely. if I could get my kids to actually pay that back, I would be appreciative on that one. <laughs> I've gone into so much debt. I've lost hair on my head for them. I have my beard is completely almost white now because of them. Um, they owe me a lot. I think the I think the one thing I really want to do is, is that because both of my children just love to live in trash you know, and destroy my place. I'm going to get to at some point, I'm just going to go to their house when they have their own family and everything. And I'm going to work through their children and just destroy the entire house and say, I don't know what you're talking about. You were supposed to watch them. I was watching them. I was watching them and having fun. Yeah. I saw Facebook reel or something recently. One of the, the videos online and where you know, I think the caption was, you know, me, me, when I walk into my kid's first house and the gal's like throwing stuff on the floor and I, and I'm laughing going, yeah, I, I get it. Cause I, oh, I'm yeah. 45 years old and I know for a fact that I still can't have nice furniture. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Furniture in my house. Good God. No, I barely have anything that's new. And uh, if I don't, it's going to be one of those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that at some point I need to find some like titanium furniture so they can't tear it up. I don't know if it exists or not, but if you can make kid proof furniture, um, I, I've got a million dollar idea out there for somebody. Oh, yeah, I, I think we have a lot of like, you know, million dollar ideas they just don't get to see the light of day because by the time we're getting ready to write them down, we've already been distracted by something else and forgotten exactly what it was. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Because within the next 20 minutes, there's a good possibility I'll be cleaning some bodily fluid or something worse off of something. And my mind will have completely shifted gears. Absolutely on that one. Yeah, our, our littlest one, she's, she likes to puke a lot, and she's cute, and she's adorable, but she's she's on the super special formula that's been difficult to find, and I don't know if you've ever dealt with the um, hypoallergenic, lactose-free, yada, yada, yada formulas, but my God, if they're not the most horrible smelling stuff in the world. The- yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things out there that are so disgusting, and they smell so bad, but they're supposed to be good for you. <laughs> well and she, she's the one you know she doesn't really eat out of a bottle much yet um she still struggles with that so we we do the uh the g-tube feeding and the, you know that's where, the way she gets most of her calories but i will say that it, it has made a distinct difference in the diaper changes as well um it's better for her stomach she's a lot better off she doesn't puke as much and she, you know she's able to take in calories so it's good and i'm, I'm thankful for that at the same time, when it comes time like to change a diaper, you don't ask which which one in diapers is in the room that's smelling funny because you can tell the difference. It's it's some pretty horrible smelling stuff. But yeah, we're just trying to be thankful that number one, it works, and number two, it's even available because I I don't know if people realize this or not, but I think most days it's easier to buy heroin than it is baby formula some days. You just got to find the right dealer, man. It's, it's, it's right there. It's right there. You just need to find the right dealership. 
Yeah, I think I think you can get it through Canada right now still, but it, it's a, it's a challenge. But it's it's what we signed up for, you know. And it's always uh, always always a challenge, but it's a challenge that's worth fighting. It you know what it is. It, it's parenthood is one of those things that you really enjoy, but you also just really hate, especially when it comes down to finding the right foods, finding the right clothes, everything. And yeah, it's expensive as can be, but it's, it's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it. That's the answer to most things. It's, it's, it's hard and it's worth it at the same time. So, well, Mac, I'm, I'm going to let you get back to your life over there today because I know you got stuff going on. I can hear a little one in that room right next door hollering something that sounds specific. specific yeah. Sounds suspiciously like dad, dad. So I think I'm going to go find a little one who's looking for me because you got to love on them when they still want you. Right. That's true. That is very, very true. Even if you want to strangle them, but it, it's, it's the suspicious uh, sound is when it's nothing but silence. And you get worried. <laughs> yeah, that's when you come in and find them on top of things that you go, huh, how did you get to the ceiling fan? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there many times on the ceiling fan one. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Well, thank you so <laughs> much for your time today, man. I really do appreciate it. Hey, no worries. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Maccabee's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your stories as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at fosterCareNation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash FosterCareUJ. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at Patreon.com slash FosterCareNation. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled <laughs> Studios. Dirty, dirty.